How can a Tory Prime Minister have two left feet? Shall I go as Theresa May dancing when I trick or treat? Following our lively discussion in Answer Me This episode 365 about Sweet Caroline by Neil Diamond, David has written in with some further facts about Neil Diamond. He says, Neil Diamond wrote Red Red Wine, covered by UB40. And Neil Diamond wrote, I'm a believer made famous by the monkeys, or by Smash Mouth, depending on how old you are. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting because both those songs are famous, but not by him. I wonder why he gave his best songs away. Maybe he released versions of it that just weren't that successful. Yeah, like, I suppose um, that's what happened. He, like Cilla Black doing like, versions of Beatles songs before they released them, and people don't really remember the, those yeah. Cilla Black versions. Maybe he doesn't like Red Red Wine. It gives him a rotten hangover. Where do you stand on the UB40 version of Red Red Wine? Uh, well, my abiding memory of it is in 1994, when I was at a Model United Nations conference in Croydon, and a, a boy came up and ground against me during that song. Oh, God. Did, did he make uh, you feel so fine or just violated or confused or all three? He did it in a less offensive way than that sounds. It was a different era, wasn't it? It wasn't a violation then. It was, it was just yeah, all harmless you know, We banter. just put up with it. We, we understood that we were basically human lampposts. <laughs> we actually play Red Red Wine on the playlist on Magic, where I sometimes cover radio shows. And it is the UB40 version... But for some reason, the version that they play on Magic doesn't have the rap in it. You know, red, red wine, you make me feel so fine. And so I always find myself filling that bit in. <laughs> do you fade down the track and do the Steve Wright thing? <laughs> you of... bring the mic up. Come on, Ollie. <laughs> the world needs to hear it. Here's a question of classic entertainment from John, who says, My friend claims that the man who played the legs in the opening sequence of The Bill had visited her school to give a talk. <laughs> That would have been a good get in the 80s and 90s. Oh, I'd happily go and see an hour-long Edinburgh Fringe show about that now. Would you just want to see him from the knees down? (laughs) No, but I quite like the idea of someone whose fame is based only, you know, solely on that. Like something that everybody knows, and yet nobody knows who you are. He's got famous calves. Yeah. He's got a peaceful life above the knee. John says... I tried to IMDB the man who played the legs in the opening of the bill. But obviously, he's not listed. So, Ollie, answer me this. Who played the legs of the officers in the opening of the bill? Because you just saw the legs of a male and female officer walking up the road. While it was like... What am I singing? Is it Blockbuster? No, you're singing Overkill by Paskin Morgan, the 1988 and onwards theme tune of the bill, which is amazing. Interestingly, not always the theme of the bill. First four years, they had a less good theme Wow. Your knowledge goes deeper than I thought. Well, not deep enough, sadly. Not knee deep. Because, well, actually, let me say, first of all, you've you've been saying unchallenged that the opening sequence of the bill featured uh, the legs of the man oh, and the woman. was it the closing credits? It, it, in fact, it was, yes. Um, it is true that there's a brief glimpse of the legs in the opening sequence from 1984 <laughs> onwards, um, but uh, it was only um, in the closing sequence where you got just solely the legs walking down the street that everyone remembers and the da 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 That's the closing sequence, not the opening sequence. The opening sequence was like intersplice footage of police sirens and angry men shouting at each other. Right. 
Well, John wants to know who both of the legs were. Yeah, well, it ditto the lady, I'm afraid. It's basically ungoogleable. Um, and I did try. Like, I've, I can tell you who the test card girl is, Carol Hersey. She's now a theatrical costume designer. I can tell ah. you who the voice of Siri is, John Briggs, also the voiceover for The Weakest Link. But, uh, but yeah, but these people I cannot find. It is not easy. So if you know, let us know. Do you think they were either members of the production team or leg models? I suspect leg models because my mum was a hand model in her time. <laughs> well, your mum has had the most interesting professional <laughs> life of anyone. Well, she was, a, she was a model and she was an actress. So it's not that way. I mean, it's not like she was just a hand model. It's just one of the things on her CV was, uh, you can just hire my hands <laughs> if you so wish. Is that who you got your beautiful hands from? Because your hands are very elegant. My father had long, thin fingers as well. So it's the incredible combination of my mother and my father that gives me these stunning fingers and yet you have resisted the lure of the hand modeling industry (laughs) so far well it's resisted me i do have a benign essential tremor so that's not great for demonstrating products oh so what could have been (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no i think certainly in 1984 if you needed the legs of two people to walk down the street because remember this is the day of three tv channels uh, I don't know, maybe Channel 4 had just launched, but, but basically three TV channels. Everyone was paid properly for their work. It was all unionised. You probably would get leg models. I don't think you would get production team people because they walk in quite a choreographed mm. way as well. They walk incredibly slowly. It's sort of like a bridesmaid walk. <laughs> yeah, it is. If it was that music, if it was... Da, 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 it would work just as well <laughs> <laughs> as the theme from the bill. Here's a question from Dan from York who says, uh, the other day... I saw a doppelganger of my partner in town. Uh, Dan's partner looks like a 7th century cathedral. Uh, (laughs) She had the same hair, the same face, very similar clothes, and was the same height as my partner. Mm. The only difference was she was about 10 to 15 years older. It was like seeing a future version of her. When Mm. I got home, I mentioned this to my partner. She said, all right, was she pretty? (laughs) Obviously, this was a lose-lose situation, but I said yes, and the answer didn't seem to go down too badly. So, Helen, answer me this. Was this the right answer? What should I have said? What would you have said? I think that's the right answer. It's the wrong answer if if the person was 15 years younger. You're absolutely right, yeah. I just saw someone who's like you 15 years ago. Oh, right, was she attractive? Yeah, not like you. Yeah, you're right. Remember remember what you used to look like. Yeah, Yeah. whereas this is is like, oh, I don't need to fear the waning of your attraction as I get older. The ageing process is not my enemy. Time isn't holding us. Yeah, you're looking forward to my hot future self. Well, that's flattering. Um, I suppose the catch-all but slightly smarmy thing you could have said is almost as pretty as you, dear. Mm-hmm. But that's, I mean, that sounds like irony. Although that's maybe just because the way you say everything sounds like irony. (laughs) I know, that's an affliction, isn't it? It's like being King Midas. Everything (laughs) I touch turns to something sour. (laughs) Uh, I mean, Dan hasn't actually said whether this woman was pretty or not. So it's quite hard to argue that Mm. he should have said anything else other than, yes, she was pretty, because we don't know the truth. But perhaps the very um, doppelganger-ness of the lady is in the eye of the beholder anyway. You know, it might be because... That's a good point. ...you're in love with your partner, Dan, that you see her in more places than she actually is. Yeah, although you'd think someone who is as as close to you as your partner would be better at identifying a doppelganger. Because sometimes I get people saying, oh, I saw someone who looked just like you, and it is just 
another white woman who's short and white. Well, actually, in your case, though... I would say, um, because recently, well, not recently, I mean, recently in your stylistic evolution, like last five years or so, you've started going to a hairdresser. And also... <laughs> you've... That's a deep burn. <laughs> it's not. I speak only truth. I mean, it's a true burn, but it's a deep burn. They don't burn my hair. I'm just Those saying. Those days are past. <laughs> you now have specific and identifiable hairstyle. And also, um, there's a certain sort of i don't i don't want to pigeonhole it in the wrong way but like i'd say like a 50s retro vibe to a lot of the clothes that you wear that means that if i see someone who's roughly your shape size height with that haircut and those clothes even if facially they look nothing like you i can see how i might think oh that someone with is it such similar style as helen that i'd feel like they're your doppelganger yeah pretty much whenever i see someone who's roughly six feet with the uh, brown hair middle pasty skin a beard and uh, rectangular glasses i'm like well that might as well be martin <laughs> <laughs> i'll take him home tonight <laughs> was he pretty <laughs> <laughs> sure <laughs> here's a question from ian in japan uh who says helen answer me this why do we call japan the land of the rising sun uh in every country i visited he says it stops being dark in the morning. That's right. Japan puts this on their flag as if they're the only ones who've ever seen it and we call it the land of the rising sun like we're blundering about in perpetual darkness. It's not the place the sun comes up first. All right. New Zealand, Micronesia, even eastern Australia, which were all discovered before Japan opened its borders, are closer to the international dateline. Japan was the land of the rising sun relative to China. Okay. So that's the context that this name arose. This phrase goes back to at least 607 AD, uh-huh. where the prince regent of Japan wrote a letter to the Chinese emperor that said, from the sun of heaven in the land where the sun rises to the sun of heaven in the land where the sun sets. Now, apparently that was quite offensive to the Chinese. Well, metaphor carries weight there, doesn't it? After that, this term started being used in official correspondence, even though the Chinese didn't particularly like it, and nor did the Japanese envoys, but it was better than what they had before. Uh, Japan was known as Wa. <laughs> it was like a transliteration of the Chinese Wo, which was an offensive term for the Japanese. It, it was sort of implying that they were bent over and submissive. And I think it's interesting that the country had a name that just contextualised it from the view of another country. Mm. And I'm trying to work out what that means. Is it that the country didn't need a name until it started interacting with other countries? Don't know, or is it just that history is written by the victors, like, you know, Newfoundland or whatever? You know, you just, I mean, the the names come about because the person who then had the lasting legacy decided to call it something, but it doesn't mean it wasn't called something else before. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, When we were in Australia, we saw a monument in Melbourne that had a correction on it. And the monument said something like, to John Englishman, who was the first person (laughs) to settle this unoccupied land. And then it had a plaque screwed onto the monument saying, "Uh, it wasn't unoccupied, sorry. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, sure. But I'd never seen that before. And I wonder whether place names are going to get more and more revised as it's recognised that the uh, English washing Mm. that has been done in many places of the world Mm. uh, is... uh, not necessarily appropriate to uphold. Yeah, well, I think, you know, these things evolve, don't they? And people's sensitivity to them evolve. It's amazing, though, isn't it, what the Chinese and the Japanese can achieve with single-syllable words. I know it's based on a much more complicated written script, but, like, when you just said, whoa. Yes. I mean, that's not so different from woo or wa or we. 
to us, but to them. That, and the, way, the tone means 10 different things. It's just so odd, isn't it, when you grow up speaking English? When you look at the word in Chinese script, it is very complicated. Lots of pen strokes for a character to my Roman alphabet attuned eyes. But the Japanese eventually changed it to different characters, which, although it kept the pronunciation, changed the meaning to harmony, peace and balance. And that was a revision afterwards, was it? I mean, that was a deliberate attempt to sort of pacify the hurtful nature of what it had previously been. Yeah. Uh, you know the animal song, uh, you know, there is a house in you, or yeah. is they call the rising sun. In that, mm. the rising sun is a whorehouse. Did you know that? I did know that. It's kind of what the song's about. Yeah, it's a folk song about a brothel. Yeah, why is it called that? Because you party all night, you yeah. know, having sex. and then, You're having sex, even though it's five And morning. then the sun rises on you having sex. Yes. Also references to rising. There could yeah. be an erectile component to that. Yeah, if you're a man, then you're someone's son. It's so less evocative, would, yeah. isn't it? If it was like there is a house in New Orleans, they call the tumescent cock. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't leave too much doubt, does it? <laughs> even in the 60s, though, I don't think that would have been a chart hit. I've got a question. Email your question. To answer me this podcast at googlemail.com. 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 We've been doing Answer Me This for such a long time now that I think surely. We have had every permutation of every question. And then sometimes there plops into our inbox something where we're like, well, that is new. Didn't see that one coming. Certainly did not see this question coming from Greta from New Zealand, who says, For the last three years, my husband and two small children and I have been living very happily in India. We rent an amazing 200-year-old house in a small village. I can smell the mango trees from here. And the drains. Last week, our landlord, who lives in a next-door cottage with his 95-year-old mother, reminded us that our lease is up for renewal at the end of the month. He said he wants to add one small clause in the new agreement. The clause states that in the event his 95-year-old mother dies in the next year, brackets, very likely, Mm. close brackets, that we have to allow her dead body to be put on display in our front room (laughs) for three days and nights to allow friends, family and well-wishers to visit her, propped up in a bed, rather than in a closed coffin. Wow. He explained that it is their religious custom to lay in one's childhood home before being buried. His terms are non-negotiable. I'm not sure how you'd want to negotiate that anyway. Like, yeah, she can be, you know, in the house, but not propped up. She has to be at a certain degree angle. I mean, either the corpse is there or it isn't. Can we put a funny hat on her? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Awkward negotiations. He says we wouldn't have to be there at the time. Okay. Where would they be? mini break but I guess you couldn't plan for it because you don't know exactly when someone's going to die Greta says while we respect their religion and traditions we're not quite sure we want the non-embalmed body of a relative stranger lying in 30 degree plus heat in the room where our kids watch cartoons yeah but you've just said you don't have to be there I mean I see your point but your kids aren't in the room at the time you could take the required two weeks if necessary to detoxify the room couldn't you And also, presumably, if this is part of the culture, it happens a lot and the body doesn't completely putress. Or people have ways of dealing with it. Yes. However, says Greta, 
making the stay versus go decision even more complex is that it's incredibly hard to find a house here. There are no estate agents or websites. It took us six months of relentless door knocking to find our dream house. Mm. But a dead body would no doubt kill the magic. And I'm not sure how we could get back to normal after that. So with heavy hearts, we've decided to cut our losses and move on. Oh, I was hoping we'd get to debate this. I thought the question was going to be, should we move out or not? People don't tend to write to us, Greta, after they've made a decision. (laughs) Especially especially one involving the displaying of a not-yet-dead corpse. That was right up my alley. What if it doesn't kill the magic but creates more magic? Exactly. Greta says, here's the even weirder part. Most of our friends here, including other foreigners, think that we're crazy to give up our house for this, quote, trivial reason. They think the notion of dead mother staying over a couple of days is no big deal in the scheme of things. Just take a staycation, they said. More or less what you just said, although you used the phrase mini-break. Well, yeah, because I think staycation means you're in your house for the night. <laughs> the opposite of what you want to do. you're creeped up by your house. That's true. Although it's, it, it started to mean, like in Britain, it means people who, who stay in Britain and don't go somewhere else on okay. holiday. Inbound tourism. Yes. But maybe you could go and stay next door... While she stays in your house. Yes, you could do a swap. <laughs> you could go and stay in the bed she was in before she died. Yeah. You're Kate Winslet. She's Cameron Diaz, but dead in this scenario. So, Ollie, answer me this. Are our friends right that we are squeamishly overreacting about three days of dead body in our front room? Or are they the crazy ones? What would you guys do? Okay, so we get to decide, but you have already decided that you're not going to live there. Is it possible to reverse this decision? Because I feel like... You would get anecdotes for years out <laughs> yeah, of this. No. I think it'd be so interesting. Like, are your kids going to remember the cartoons they watch? Probably not. Will they remember this? Yes, it's a pretty big insight into the local culture that you've opted into. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually, because, I mean, Greta said she's from New Zealand. The way she's writing about India, it seems like this is a temporary stay. Maybe maybe it's for five or ten years, but probably she's not going to live in India forever. If you want your children to remember what it was like, you're absolutely right. This is something that's vivid, isn't it? And I think also children aren't as squeamish about death. I think children can take a lot of things in their stride. Mm. And it might just be interesting because I think in, in Britain where we don't tend to have things like open casket funerals like they do in the States, there is a lot of squeamishness about death and the process and saying goodbye to someone. But I know friends in other countries who've had like the body lying in state and people come to visit generally not as hot countries as this one but But that that issue that issue of like oh god the flesh is going to be putrescing and it's going to stink and it's dangerous and all that i mean as you say if it's their local custom there's probably people who professionally assist in making sure that that's relatively hygienic okay perhaps not quite as you do it in new zealand but nonetheless probably not going to kill you and you know the, the hundreds if not thousands of years of history that have built into that cultural tradition will ensure that it's not an unpleasant thing. I mean, I I haven't been to a ceremony like the one you're describing, but I have been to Indian funerals here in the UK, Hindu funerals, where just before they cremate the body, there is an open coffin in the house. And I think, had that been in India rather than uh, in Perivale, for example, in the the instance that (laughs) I'm thinking of, um, there wouldn't have been a coffin at all. It would have been an open pyre that would have then been sent out in the Ganges. And so the idea Mm. is that you basically... Uh, I mean, not to sound disrespectful, but basically you chuck a load of herbs and spices on the corpse. That's the idea. So that when you then burn the body, it smells fragrant in that very Indian way. It's all about actually making a positive um, sort of divine smelling and um, sort of pleasant floral experience out out of this horrible thing of the person having died. Chances are you'd come back to your house where this person's been rested 
and actually it will smell wonderful in there because people have brought loads of offerings and flowers and stuff. This is such a funny one because I feel like it would be really, really interesting, but I also feel like the landlord is sort of abusing his position a little bit here. There may be this custom that someone is shown in their, in their childhood home, but a childhood home with complete strangers in it. Yeah. Maybe the reason why there aren't many houses on the market is that people don't move, and that's why they can be propped up in the house where they were born. <laughs> that's a good, good, good question. You're right that if he didn't own the home, I'm curious about the logistics of asking for your mother's dead body to be propped up in a bed in a house if you don't own the house anymore. Like, what happens there? Like, does that happen? Like, is this tradition strong enough that people would just be like, oh, yeah, of course, like, because other people would do the same well, thing Well, maybe if me. it's Indian. So maybe if he's renting to other people from the area, yeah. they get it. Because that's what they did yeah. for their mother. Yeah, and it seems like a big ask. Like, even if they go away, they're, they're spending money to go and stay in a hotel or something, which presumably they're not going to get back off, off the rent. So why couldn't she just be displayed in the home that she was in? Like, wouldn't that be sufficiently respectful? It just seems very odd to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, this is... You know, we're very traditional, so we want strangers hosting her. So you're saying Greta should have uh, tried to barter with him. It's like, okay, well, you can either display her in your house and just cheat the geography of your tradition, or you can pay for us to go to a hotel. She hasn't mentioned that that's a possibility. I mean, she did. She says non-negotiable, but like paying to go to a hotel, that does seem reasonable, actually. Like, he might be up for that. The other thing is, she might not die this year. You could yeah. have just kept the house. But I mean, you're gambling on it. My My grandmother... Everyone thought she was about to die throughout her 90s. She lived to 99 and a half. Yeah, yeah, but they're not talking about living in this house for 12 months either. They want to live there for a little longer than that. So that I think that's that's pushing the problem down the road. Maybe it, she won't die that year. Maybe it'll be a year after that or the year after that. But they might, they'll, there's a decent chance they'll still be in the house when it happens. And if they've agreed to it, then they can't then say, actually, no, this is, this is a pretty weird idea. Okay, so I think there are two issues here. One is the squeamishness about death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other is, I'm just thinking about this as someone who has never owned their own home and has been a renter. There are lots of things that make you feel insecure as a yeah. renter. Like, like the landlord can do whatever they want to. Yeah, so do you think that's part of it? She, It's not the death part, it's just that she wants to be undisturbed. Yeah, it's it should be her home to live in if she's renting, and like you'd be like, that's my home. I get to decide what I do with it. Uh, but I just think this would be such an interesting thing to happen in my home. So, okay, so actually, are you saying, Helen, she is overreacting and she shouldn't move out? Is that where you're falling on this? Because, by the way, I haven't answered the question yet. You're saying, yes, she's overreacting. Yeah. I think she's right. I think it's a bit, like, I was about to say, like, if the landlord's asking for that, what else are they going to ask for? But it's like, there's literally nothing they could ask for that is more intense and intrusive than their dead mother being propped up in your own home. That is a huge ask, and I think it's fine to say no. Again, to be clear, Helen, you think she's overreacting. Martin, you think she's right and they should move out. Those are the two options. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think they're right. So I get the sort of casting vote on this. I do understand your squeamishness. However, I do think, given everything else you've told us, the amazing house, the tricky property market, your general happiness... I think I side with your friends. I think I would say get a really good cleaning company to come round afterwards... And allow this thing. Get the landlord to pay for that. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't mind being there. I'd like to see what different cultures do in the event of death. So I think it's valuable I would to love see to, that. I would love to do that, not in my own house. Okay, but anyway, you lost, Martin. So uh, so we win. Ah! Anyway, but ultimately you won because she is moving out. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good on you. Well, good luck finding a new house, I yeah, guess. Yeah, I hope you find something. Who knows what conditions will be attached <laughs> yeah, get, get, get a new build. One that no one old has grown up in. <laughs> yeah. 
I've made my fortune on the dark web selling machine guns But my dream is to monetize my homemade cream buns They don't sit too well listed next to AK-47s My poor lonely buns Build your bun shop of dreams using squarespace.com There's 24-7 support if you get it wrong And you'll be selling more buns than guns before very long If you evade the law I've just been arrested Thanks very much to Squarespace for sponsoring this episode of Answer Me This. And also for advertising all over the London Underground this month. But remember, we got there first. Which do you love more? Us or the London Underground? Us, who make the London Underground more tolerable as you listen to us on your commutes. (laughs) Exactly. Or the London London Underground, Underground, which is stressful as hell. So even if you have seen the Squarespace posters on the London Underground this month, don't use the tube discount code, please. Use our one. But whichever you love more, Answer Me This or the London Underground... The Squarespace product is unaffected. On Squarespace, you can build a website using their award-winningly designed templates and their easy drag-and-drop tools to create a store or photography portfolio or the menu for your pop-up restaurant or a blog or whatever. And actually, we, we don't really say this enough. Even if you have a website somewhere else and you're not going to port it over to Squarespace, you can't be bothered, you've got an existing website, they're really good at selling domains as well. So when you buy your next mm. domain buy it from Squarespace, something they do, for example, right, is if you buy a domain and you want, a, like, a professional email address, they're like, helen at mybusinesschisel.com. That sounds professional. Very professional. <laughs> helen at takemeseriously.co.uk. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, if you want a professional email address like that, that comes free with the domain. But also, when you actually access that email, rather than it being on some rubbish, clumsy, office-based email server it's on gmail Hmm. right because squarespace have a partnership with google so you get the professional email address but a decent email service that you're used to from your personal email which you actually like using gmail it's a win-win that's pretty good and you can get a 10 percent discount off your first purchase of a website or domain at squarespace.com slash answer using the discount code answer Speaking of squares, uh, Ian in Watford <laughs> says, I was listening to one of your more recent back episodes, and Helen, you talked about being square, as in being more square than your own parents. Mm. So Helen, answer me this. How, why, and when did the square shape become associated with being uncool? Interesting question, Ian. Because before the associations were being uncool, um, it used to be kind of praised that you were stable and upstanding and honest. It's meant that since at least the 1570s. The first references to it being uncool, kind of from the late 18th century, when square toes was kind of an insult, because that referred to people wearing like square-toed shoes that were no longer in fashion. So it meant you were kind of old-fashioned and a bit too formal. That seems to be unrelated to it coming from jazz slang of the 1940s, where it referred to uh, the shape of a conductor's hand gestures if they were marking out a regular four-beat rhythm. So like conventional music in one, two, three, four, rather than jazz going all over the place. Okay. So when people say you're square in the jazz era, they mean you're into the conventions of classical music and we're breaking them all down, man. Yeah, okay. yeah, you're affiliated with that and you're not a hep. Hep was the opposite of square. Um, so why does it suck around, do we think, this uh, squareness being uncool? Because it's, uh, it's still being propagated, this, in um, the theme tune to Thomas and Friends, I know from watching with Harvey. Really? Yeah. Toby, well, let's say he's square, it says as a joke. I think a lot of jazz slang caught on 
the timing of it, I guess, and I'm speculating here, but the timing was also a time of mass media, so the words had a chance of spreading mm. more than Square Toes did when it was in <laughs> Smollett books, you know? Here's a question from Kelly from Minnesota who says, Last month, I finally had LASIK surgery on my eyes and it's been absolutely amazing being able to see without glasses or contact lenses. Suddenly I see. This is where I want to be, Minnesota. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Do you think they've heard of Katie Tunstall in Minnesota? They have, yeah. It was quite a big hit in the States, that. Hillary Clinton wanted to use it as her walk-on music, didn't she? Or possibly even did. Uh, yeah. Really? I remember a news story vaguely about this. Katie Tunstall was on Song Exploder as well a couple of years ago, maybe... Uh... That penetrated to Minnesota. There's a lot of podcast listeners in Minnesota. Did she talk about the Clinton walk-on music thing in that? No, but there was someone else on Song Exploder who did. The person who did Fight Song, Rachel Platten. Right. And she talked about the weirdness of, like, this song that she had put out as a young pop star suddenly having a political dimension. I remember when um, uh, David Cameron, during the coalition years, used to walk on at the Conservative Party conference to all these things that I've done by the killers. And I used to think, I know that your spin doctor thinks, ah, killers are cool. You know, this is 2010 or whatever. Killers are cool. Plus, you've done lots of things because you've, you know, you've shaked up the agenda. But it's a song that's clearly full of regret, isn't it? It's a song about doing bad things, not doing good things. Yeah, well, how appropriate is that? Even if you haven't heard the song, all the things that I've done by a band called The Killers <laughs> is, not, is not great optics. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. It doesn't speak to building a better, fairer society, necessarily. <laughs> she says... I know the technology for LASIK surgery has been around for at least a couple of decades now, but it still seems totally incredible to me that they can fix your eyes in a matter of minutes with lasers. That is amazing, isn't it? I didn't realise it was that quick. It is that quick. A machine does it in a couple of minutes. And the flap of your cornea (laughs) automatically heals itself. It has bonding properties Mm -hmm. inside, so there's no stitching needed. That's why it just takes a few... It's like freaky Cronenbergian stuff when you read into it, but it's amazing. We used to show a video of uh, laser eye surgery when I was a medical physicist, and even the medical students in the audience would cringe because it's uh, it's a little Cronenbergian. When I was a medical physicist, all these things that I've done... (laughs) (laughs) Is that what's in the song? That and form a coalition with the Liberal Democrats. Kelly says, of course, thousands of these procedures are done every year, and it's considered to be very safe... But I was still mildly worried that it might mess up my eyes forever, Mm. like forming the coalition did for Nick Clegg. (laughs) So Ollie answered me this. Who was the first brave soul to allow doctors to zap their delicate eyeballs with lasers when it had never been done on a person before? I imagine they practiced on animal eyes or donated cadaver eyes before doing it on live human eyes. But how did doctors really know it would work? Okay, so hieroglyphics, let me be specific. When Kelly talks about LASIK... (laughs) (laughs) What's happening? <laughs> when Kelly talks about LASIK, um, that stands for laser-assisted in situ keratomyliosis. Good Lord. Um, so LASIK is a particular kind of eye surgery, which is the one that everyone has now with laser. But um, that means combining an eczema laser with an incision. That happened in 1991 for the first time. Mm-hmm. But for about four or five years before that, um, professors had been experimenting with laser technology it was patented for ophthalmic surgery in 1988. So, um, mm. you know, it's difficult to say, you know, which was the first one on a live human because do you take the first LASIK or do you take the first pre-LASIK? Do you count someone who was blind and therefore sort of, you know, crudely had nothing to lose or do you say it has to be someone who was alive but had sight to lose? And cut a long story short, <laughs> the case study that seems to get most quoted is the first person who had eyesight to volunteer to have an eye lasered 
when they were alive. Um, and that person was Aberta Cassidy. She uh, had it done on Friday, March the 25th, 1988, at Louisiana State University. The uh, scalpel wielder was Dr. Marguerite MacDonald. And the reason that uh, Aberta gave herself up for that was that she had cancer, and she had quite a poor prognosis anyway, and she required surgery anyway. And even after the surgery, she still had a poor prognosis, and the surgery itself would be disfiguring. So she basically said, fuck it, yeah, I'll have experimental surgery, why not, at the same time? And they hmm. they did her eyes, and I mean, unfortunately, she did die of the cancer, but her eyes did improve day upon day, right from that very first uh, live oh. surgery. So it is amazing. And and uh, until then, from 1984, they had, yes, you have correctly uh, suggested, Kelly, uh, you know, experimented on uh, dead human eyes, living rabbit eyes, then living monkey eyes. You know, there's lots of tests before they put them on a living, sighted human. I always think it's very impressive when someone does that like that. I know that she was, you know, going to die, but... That's pretty cool to be like, I'm going to spend additional time in hospital, despite the enormous amount of time I'm already spending in hospital, not because it'll help me at all, yeah. but because it'll help people in the future. I always think that's really awesome. Well, I want to know, for the people before her, how did they know that the people who already had poor vision or were blind, how did they know it had been successful, apart from, I don't know, it didn't burn her eyelids off or whatever? Yeah, well, I, I suspect possibly they're testing the technique rather than the success rate, aren't they? The success rate is a theory. They're kind of getting rid of the, uh, making sure there aren't any adverse effects kind of thing. Well, basically, can they use a laser to help adjust the cornea? Yeah. And then, and then yeah, they'll right. work out without, whether or not it helps someone see. Injury. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which bit of the eye do you need to do things on? How deep do you go, etc.? Yeah. You know, getting the manual experience of it. Because it was still considered experimental until 1995, when it was approved by the US government. I mean, obviously, people having it in the early 90s, like, there'd been a few hundred cases by then, but still... It wasn't approved until the mid-90s. So for the first 10 years, people were like, take your chance, basically. But I still think there's quite a frisson around it now. And I don't know the success rates or otherwise of it or the risks, whether, you know, if it doesn't work, you're no worse off than before or if you are. But I know a few people who've done it and they all were worried going in. And all of them, I think it's worked really well for. I think as long as you keep your eyes still, there's very, very little risk. Because part of the reason that they don't do it on the open surface is if there are any scratches, like if they kind of do it too much or too little, because there's that flap that comes over, it, it will kind of correct. Whereas if they did that just on the open surface mm. of the eye, those scratches could, could impair your vision a little bit. So it, there's, there's a certain amount of like, uh, what's the word, like error, error correction built into it. But I, I agree with Helen. I think it, I, and I think the reason is vanity, in a word. Like I think if the, if the cause of the surgery was medicinal then the risk rates that there are, which are tiny, would be completely acceptable, wouldn't they? And everyone would say that's safe surgery, but you'd be having it for yeah. a necessary reason. Whereas most people getting this surgery done, which is why it's not in the NHS, are doing it because they just don't fancy wearing glasses or contact lenses anymore. Well, I think for some pe- a lot of people it's life-changing to be able to see so much better. Like friends I know who've done it, it's not vanity. The glasses were no longer strong enough. Maybe, but you still... Well, I suppose what I'm saying is if it went wrong, you'd feel like, oh, God... I've done this, and it was just so that I could look a bit different without my glasses on. Have either of you considered having it? I mean, I can't have it because I have long vision, which means it wouldn't work. But both of you have got short sight, right? Which uh, LASIK works on. I like the way that glasses make my face look. I think they make my face look more interesting. If you think your face looks boring, Martin, why don't you hang some tinsel on it? (laughs) (laughs) All right, done. I've actually genuinely never 
thought about it. The only time it like occurs to me as a question, to which the answer is still no, is when it pops up as a discount on something. <laughs> <laughs> What's well, on Groupon, so maybe... Yeah, two eyes for £10. It always was on Groupon, and I always used to think, yeah, like that and sushi, I don't want a discount. I, I want quality products <laughs> that I'm going to pay full price for. It had an omelette station, a multitude of pools, but 30 quid for parking, WTF. Four Star Hotel. There's Ethernet, not Wi-Fi like it's 1998, but there was a swim-up bar in the rooftop pool. Three Star Hotel. A bit more down to earth, they did still have a pool, but it was full of kids. Two-star hotel. A lot more down to earth. They also had a pool, but it was full of dogs. One-star hotel. There's a body in the pool. Answer me this holiday. All the fun of travelling with none of the stinky toilets or frightening food. Out now at answermethispodcast.com slash albums. I really love that song. It's catchy. Whenever I see an omelette station, I think about it. (laughs) (laughs) And if you enjoyed the jingle, imagine how much you'd enjoy the album. We have five one-off albums. That's over five hours of us talking. That's more albums than Jeff Buckley. (laughs) And they're funnier. Definitely funnier. And they were top 20 in uh, the British charts. Which is also more than Jeff Jeff Buckley Buckley. when he was alive. Uh, Anyway, yes, we've we've done five albums. uh, Holiday, Love... Christmas, help me out here, Helen. Jubilee sports day. and Sports Day. Yeah, Christmas. I mean, that's... Just around the corner. The festive period is uh, looming. I mean, it is still like nearly three months away, but they've got it in the shops already. And all our albums are available for under three quid from answermethisstore.com, where you can also buy our equally good value first 200 episodes, apps, and donate to the show. Andrew in uh, Sydney, Australia says... Uh, Helen, answer me this. How did passion fruit get its name? I'm very passionate about how much I love it, but I'd love to know what moment of passion may have determined this fabulous fruit's moniker. Oh, I'm really sorry to ruin this for you, Andrew. It's not the sexy kind of passion. It's the least sexy kind of passion. Oh, what, the Jesus passion? Yes. Is it? Yes. But surely they didn't nail passion fruit to a cross. Because all the seeds would drip out of it. It's because of the flower. Uh, the passion flower, which is a very symbolic flower. Catholics in South America decided that um, you could see all of the elements of the Christy passion in it. So the stamens were Christ's wounds, uh, the petals and sepals were the ten apostles, excluding Judas and Peter. The corona threads were the crown of thorns, uh, the three stigmas are the nails on the cross. The pointed tips of the leaves oh. were taken to represent the Holy Lance. Tendrils represent the whips used to flagellate Christ. See, do you think this was like a fun game where they came up with this? Where they're like, what fruit looks most like Jesus? And then they had fun discussing it like we would. And then the end of the night, they were like, yeah, passion fruit. It's got, it's got all the different disciples in it. It's got, the, it's got the pattern. Or do you think people took this really seriously to mean... Therefore, passion fruit has been decreed by God, the fruit of Jesus. You would have to be pretty loaded if you're like, yeah, sure, yeah, this uh, this bit of the flower looks like the Holy Grail. This bit looks like heaven. Yeah, exactly. I think, though, a coded language of flowers, floriography, was a lot more popular in the past than it is now, Ollie. Okay. So that was the Catholic interpretation of the passion flower. It, it was Catholic missionaries in South America where I think they first saw the plant 
And uh, other countries also have gone for quite a Christy interpretation, so they'll call it Crown of Thorns or Christ's Crown or something like that. But then some of them call it the Clock Flower. In Greece and Japan, I think they call it things related to clocks because it looks like a clock. You see what you want to see, basically, a timepiece or Jesus being killed in a horrible way. It's almost as if when you look in fruit, it's got nothing to do with things that aren't fruit. How dare you? I saw Moses in an apple just the other day. (laughs) Here's a question from Phil in Newcastle in Australia, who says, Ollie, answer me this. Who are the youngest people to have become dames or lords? And what were they given these titles for? These titles always seem to be given to older people. Well, titles like that are generally given to older people because they've generally achieved more. Yeah, if you're older, you've done more. It's like it's a bit odd if you get on desert island discs before you're 40. I agree. Mm. I mean, not that I'd say no. I should say as well, Phil, that damehoods aren't the same as lordships. I don't know why you've asked about damehoods and lordships, but... Is one higher up than the other one? Dame's equivalent yeah. to, a, to a, a sir, a exactly. knight, knighthood, isn't so it? So dame yeah. is the female equivalent of sir. Mm-hmm. So that's the highest honour you can get given, well, by the government or the royal family, the establishment, without it being a serving political position. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lord actually sits in the House of Lords and has a political vote. So that's higher than a sir or a dame. Can you be made a lord in the honours list or do you have to be born to okay you can so it's all done at the same time but the lords are appointed by the prime minister basically right so you do have people that were sirs and became lords like andrew lloyd webber was that but generally speaking people don't make it into the house of lords that route it's through other things life's in politics and stuff but the point is the female equivalent of a lord is a baroness right Mm. so i'll I'll look at dames but let's look at baronesses and lords shall we and then is a baron on the same level or what the baron titles in this country related to land, right? So that, okay. those were the hereditary peers. Uh-huh. But since the 90s, we don't have hereditary peers anymore, apart from the ones that were made life peers because they were popular amongst their peers. Different use of the word <laughs> peers than the original use of the word peers. I'm sure everyone is following this. Mm. Um, <laughs> so barons just kind of complicate things because you have barons, but they're not necessarily lords anymore. Anyway, God, how embarrassing. Um, <laughs> it was interesting to look at this because I just sort of assumed that the record on who was the youngest ever dame would be old, because in olden times people died young. But then Kelly Holmes is pretty young and she's a dame. Yeah, you're on the right track. Uh, as was she. Hey. Hey, am I wrong? Zoom, See, zoom, we zoom. could have a show on TalkSport. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, youngest ever dame was appointed in 2005, and it was Ellen MacArthur. Oh, wow. Solo long-distance yachtswoman. She was 28 years old when she was made a dame. Oh, and that's the youngest. Okay. She's the youngest ever, yeah. So all the dead medieval dames older Well, older, yeah. So who's the youngest lord then? Uh, well, when they were hereditary, so when we had a hereditary peerage system, different question for a different day, but when we did... Well, then you can be naughty years old if you're a hereditary lord. No. Oh. Not to be a serving lord, the um, statute states that no lord under the age of one and twenty years shall be permitted to sit in the house. Okay. 120? One and one, 21. 21. So, uh, so basically the answer would be 21 because mm-hmm. upon turning 21, like every year, dozens of lords, yeah. right? So the answer is 21. But if you take the question to mean since we abolished hereditary peers, who's the youngest peer since then, then it would actually, ironically, be a hereditary peer because it was Lord Reedsdale, uh, which is the lord name for Rupert Mitford, yeah, it's the Mitford's uh, seat. He was a hereditary peer, but he was one of the ones that got chosen to be a life peer, and he was only 32 when that happened. Yeah. So he was the youngest ever life peer, because normally to be given a life period, you'd have had to have achieved more than a 32-year-old would have. But I'm going to take this question as uh, they're asking about the ones who get bestowed a period in like the New Year's Honours lists. Okay. In that case, I think you'd still struggle to find a lord that was ever younger than 21. 
So the answer would still be the hereditary one. No, but scrap but, the hereditary ones. Well, the, I, know, I can tell you who the current youngest male member is. Okay, that'll do. Uh, that's Lord Way. Uh, he was born in 1977. The current youngest female member is Baroness Burton, who was born in 1978. Right. So if we 14, were in the 14. House of Lords now, Helen, yeah. we'd actually be the youngest ones there. Oh, barely, though. Cause barely, but we would be. For a couple Barely's of years. Barely's good enough for me. Squeaking it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Baby-ish of the house. I'll be the toddler yeah. of the house. That's all right. Do you know, I've got time to get in there, abolish hierarchies, and still be the youngest before I get out, or I think, I'm beheaded. I think that's what some of the lords are doing. I mean, because like, actually the, the Mitford lord we were talking about before, he's a Liberal Democrat. Oh, really? So it's a bit weird, because he was made a life peer from a position of hereditary peerage, but the party that he supports supports the abolishment of hereditary peers, and you know, would think that people like him shouldn't have a seat. Well, here we are at the end of the show and please send us your questions for next month's show. We are having some problems as we have recounted before with our Skype and voicemail. So if you want to be sure we get your questions in your voice, then record a voice memo and email it or just write an email and email it to the contact details that are on our website, answermethispodcast.com. And you can listen to our other audio projects, oh, yeah. such as The Modern Man, starring Oliver Mann. Well, actually, that was beautifully done. But actually, The uh, Modern Man... The beautiful and talented <laughs> Oliver Mann! Uh, Hands like an angel. Uh, but actually, uh, The Modern Man returns next month, so I would like to, in the meantime, Ooh. highlight my other podcast, The Week Unwrapped. Uh, that is a weekly discussion show about the news stories that you've missed from the weeks gone by. So, for example, um, in the past few weeks, we haven't been talking about the party conferences. We've been talking about sex education in video games. And mm. we haven't Ooh. been talking about the US's relationship with China. We've been talking about Sweden's relationship with China. So it's kind of like weird mm. facts about the world as it is really happening, but not being widely reported. Uh, you can hear that at theweekunwrapped.com. And The Illusionist is also uh, available to put into your ears. That's Helen's excellent podcast. It certainly is. And Martin and I are currently touring The Illusionist around the US and Canada in exciting, funny, onstage, musical, visual form. So come to that between now and mid-November 2018. The dates are listed at theillusionist.org slash events. Uh, any city highlights from that tour that you're looking forward to and or a place that isn't selling very well that you'd like to bolster? I mean, what the fuck, New York and LA? I know I have a lot of listeners there, but why are you all so lazy? <laughs> <laughs> come on, Austin. Come on, Austin. We're so excited to go to Austin because Martin wants to catch the bat season before it ends. I want bats and barbecue. That's why I'm going to Austin. Don't combine the two, though. If only you were as excited about us coming to Austin as we are about us going to Austin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Martin, you have a podcast as well. Yeah, Song by Song podcast. uh, Talks about every Tom White song in chronological order. Uh, We're currently halfway through his live album, Big Time, from the 80s. But jump in. It's not just for Tom White's fans. We talk about all kinds of fun music and have some great guests on the show i'm on the current bit of big time aren't i you are on the current bit of big time yeah. some of those songs are uh, it's a mixed bag on big time isn't it yeah 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 uh, you can listen to the good and the bad at songbysongpodcast.com and if you have been tracking the progress throughout the year on answer me this of ryan from melbourne's hair oh yeah well he's growing it and then he was like should i make it into a wig should i buy a dyson hairdryer uh, yeah that guy yeah you'll be relieved to hear that he says I did spring for the hairdryer and I love it. Oh, It's a major quality of life update from my last hairdryer. And though I wasn't one to bother drying my hair before, now I look forward to it. I can afford to leave my showers to the last minute because of how quickly it dries my hair. (laughs) 
I wonder if you don't want to spend the money on the hairdryer, whether you could just use one of the vacuums. It's probably the same turbine. Yeah, or dip it in and out of the hand dryer. Yeah. (laughs) And we will return halfway through the month with a retro episode of Answer Me This on your feed for a brief, exciting moment. That's right, you have to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts to be able to hear that. And then on the first Thursday of November, we will be back with an all-new episode of Answer Me This. So do join us for that. Bye. Bye!